it's a real honor to have Ambassador Roya Romani here, who's the Afghan ambassador of the United States. I'm also really, really happy that my friend, uh, Ambassador uh, Tony Wayne, who's a senior advisor here, is going to make some opening remarks. A ambassador Wayne and I just co-authored a report this morning. I want everyone to go out and read it. Um, called Finishing Strong in Afghanistan, the proper exit. So we wanted to have a conversation to talk about all the progress. I think most of the time, most of the coverage in Afghanistan is about the challenges. I'm not going to lie. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know there's a lot of challenges in Afghanistan. But what I think really goads me and makes me upset is that there's almost no discussion of the major and significant and real progress. And so we need to be thoughtful about how we make a strong finish. And I think that we are going to finish, but we need to do it in a responsible and thoughtful way, dependent on the conditions. So I'm really glad that we're all here. I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to turn the floor over to my friend, Ambassador Wayne, and then we're going to hear from the ambassador to have a conversation. Thank you. Ambassador, come on up. Okay. Thank you, Dan, and thanks, everybody, for being here today. Dan has passed the core of this message that, that we hope to share with all of you and we know the ambassador will underscore, which is that the United States and the rest of the international community working with millions of Afghans have made substantial progress in many areas over the last 20 years, despite the very serious problems that continue. That it is time for Afghanistan to continue to assume more responsibility in this effort. And this movement has been underway, as many of you know, for the, the last several years. And we expect this will continue, and it should continue. But we need to proceed at this time with careful deliberation as we consider what steps we should take. I'm sure as the ambassador will indicate there's widespread support for a path to peace in Afghanistan. Afghans of all political orientations, I think including the Taliban, would like to see peace. And so would we, uh, from the international community, from the United States, from other countries that have devoted so much energy to this situation over the past two decades. But we need to think seriously about what that peace process should look like, if there are viable steps that can be agreed now to move in that direction. In all likelihood, if we look at peace processes around the world, they usually are not quick if they work. They take time to build confidence, to define steps that actually bring the parties together and that produce that gradual situation where you can have parties that have been fighting each other for a long time, actually working together, governing together, uh, have a process of selection of leadership that can help this society and this country move forward to a really new phase. And I think that's where we are right now. And so moving hastily um, can be very costly for us, for Afghanistan, for the region. We've tried in a report that we put out today that, that Dan and I and uh, our, uh, our assistants, uh, assistant Carmen helped, uh, helped draft and we sent that out and shared it with everybody. We hope you'll take a look through it because we try to lay out both where the problems are, but also the areas where there's been substantial progress. We don't get into the details of a possible peace, peace process and there are many very substantial issues to be thought through both in the short and medium term in such a process. But we do try to lay out the reasons that we should really proceed with due deliberation at this point. And I think the presence of all of you here today shows that there is still a very substantial interest in Afghanistan and in taking these steps forward in a constructive way. So I think I'll end with that. Uh, it's a great, great privilege that we have the new uh, ambassador of Afghanistan here with us today, and we look forward to hearing from her. Thank you very much. Ambassador, come on up. 
There was a famous TV show that said, come on down, but why don't you come on up in this case. Sure, Have a seat, not? Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I'm super biased uh, about this. Uh, so I'm really, really proud of what we've put together. And so I'm just, I just need to spend a minute. Um, I just want to walk through some of the statistics because I'm tired. I, I've gotten tired of sort of the, the Debbie Downer discussions about the country. Like there are a lot of things to be, and we're, I know you all will raise your hand and will tell me all the, the tough things, and I know they're all true, but let me just walk you through some things. So, okay, so our foreign assistance uh, has dropped as, as Afghanistan's picked up the pace. We used to spend about $2.5 billion on things like education and health and, and other things. Uh, and the Afghans are spending about, a, you know, we spend about a billion and the Afghans spend about a billion on those sorts of kind of economic assistance issues. So the Afghans collected in taxes in the year 2002, this is a trivia question, how much did the Afghan government collect in taxes in the year 2002? $20 million. How much did the Afghans collect in taxes and fees in the most recent year? $2.5 billion. Now, that's real money. That's the kind of stuff you got. That kind of money you can start paying for cops. You can start paying teachers. You can run a government. Now, you know, my friend Catherine Baer, who is sort of the tax czarina at the IMF, I have a little joke with Catherine Baer. I call it the bare minimum. Catherine, what's the bare minimum to run a government? And she says, as a percentage of GMP, it's a, she really wants to shoot for 20%. Afghanistan does about 11 or 12% is collected in taxes and fees. And Afghanistan made a promise to its donor saying, give us some time, and we're going to, over time, we're going to raise, we're going to get to 14%. And they're getting there. If you look at these statistics, you'll say, okay. That's what, I mean, that's what, that's what, these, that's what these graphs are. So, okay, Afghanistan tax collection surges. Um, look at this stuff. Okay, so in the year 2002, the GNP per capita was probably one of the poorest, absolute poorest countries in the world, was $200 per capita. It's now $600 per capita. It ain't going to be Switzerland anytime soon, but it's tripled. That's, that's a big, that's an enormous improvement. Um, if you look at the amount of electricity, in the year 2000, 0% of the Afghans had electricity. Uh, it's around 85% of Afghans today have electricity. How many cell phones were there in Afghanistan in the year 2000? About zero. How many are there today? It's over, it's over, uh, it's something like uh, 25, 20 million, something like that, of cell phones, something More like that. that. How many girls in school were there in Afghanistan in the year 2000? Everyone know that answer? Doesn't take a genius. Zero. Zero. How many are there today? Three million? 3.6. 3.6 million. 3.6 million. So you have a living legacy of people who have started in the year 2002, went through K through 12, women, who've then gone to university, who are now in the labor market. They started at six, and they're now working in government. We're going to pull the plug on that? That would be crazy. So let me just, I'm just I, let me just, just allow me, if you will. So, okay, what percentage of the, of the so there's a straight line number of about 90%. The Asia Foundation's done a survey saying, do you want, the, basically, it's a proxy for, do you want the Taliban to come back and run the country solo? 90% say no. It's like the FARC. So 20 years ago in Colombia, if you ask the, the Colombians, say, I would really like that Marxist regime, that some Marxist guerrillas to take over Colombia, that would be great. What percentage of the Colombians voted for, were on the survey would say that, like 5%? It's kind of in the FARC territory. Right? You know, we don't talk about these things. Um, okay, so this isn't San Francisco, but this is okay. This is, most Afghans agree that women should have equal opportunities in education. Okay, 85%, I'd like 95%, I'd like 99%, I'd like 100%, I'll take 85%. Would you? I'll take it. So, uh, Afghan satisfaction democracy will not at an all-time high sees modest rise. Okay, so what percentage of Afghans are satisfied with democracy? 60, 65%. Okay, well, I don't know what percentage in the U.S. is satisfied with democracy. <laughs> Um, but it ain't, you know, I'm, you know, so I think you guys get the idea. Um, but when was the last time you had a conversation when we started with that on Afghanistan? Probably never. When was the last time you saw a report that talked about the progress? Probably never. Never. So that's why we wrote it. So I wanted to have this conversation. We can talk about all the downer stuff, and it's real, okay? And we mention it in there, and you guys can raise your hand and tell me all the downer stuff, and, I, and we'll talk about it. But... 
we have, development is a 20-year project, not a 20-minute project. And so maybe the United States has had 17 one-year programs in Afghanistan, but I think the Afghans have had a 17-year program. Maybe we've had a 17 one-year program. So we're not the only, we are a contributor, we're a supporting actor in their, in their journey, but it's their journey. And I think they've had a, you know, they've, they've made clear, steady progress. That's the story of development. That's a 20-year conversation. We're in year 17. We gotta give this some time. We need to finish strong in Afghanistan. We need to finish strong in Afghanistan. But I got a number of questions I wanna ask the ambassador. Sorry, ambassador, I never do this. I never get on my, I'm, I'm seated, but I'm on a soapbox. Sorry to be on seated soapbox here, but, but I, I'm really glad you're here, ambassador. So I want you to, so what's your reaction to all that progress? Is, do, do you, do you, don't you think that the story, the, pro, the story of the progress doesn't get told enough? Do you agree with that? Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for, platform, for this platform. Thank you, everybody, for being here. The very fact that you are all here is very encouraging. I must start by that. So thank you for coming out here, and thank you for this very positive start. You already gave the data that I needed to give, so thank you for right. that. Right. I read your talking points. I'm yeah, sorry. You did. But. but so what is the reaction? I have been here only for seven weeks. And sometimes when I, I, I keep meeting people all the time, this is what I do throughout the day. And sometimes, uh, or let's say usually people tell me, oh, nice to meet you, you're very positive. And uh, it surprised me, given my background, what I know, why shouldn't I be positive? Because there is reason for me to be positive. What Dan just said, what we have achieved in the past 17 years always surprised me. And I am saying that with a lot of honesty. A lot of things that are happening today back in my country, when I was growing up, was not imaginable. It was not imaginable. I can give you many, many examples and stories. Let me start by one of my favorite ones. Prior to coming to Washington DC, I was ambassador to Indonesia. This year, well, not this year, past year. I'm losing track of time. Washington yeah. keeps me busy. So uh, in 2018, uh, Asian games were happening in Jakarta, Indonesia, and other cities. Um, so uh, a lot of Afghan athletes also participated in these games, uh, about like, uh, 24 different disciplines uh, came from Afghanistan. And uh, <clears throat> as they were exercising and practicing and participating in the games, um, I heard that uh, two of our paragliders had an incident. They crashed. So as they were practicing, they crashed 30 meters down. They hit the ground. They could not participate in the game. Being representative of my government and surprisingly hearing that they were women, I made a decision to go visit them. I visited a hospital where our paraglider was uh, in, in bed. She amazed me. She amazed me to the point that I could not imagine. This woman had left her profession as a journalist, an income-earning profession as a journalist to pursue paragliding professionally in Afghanistan. I had thousands of questions for this young woman. How, the first one was, how did you even come up with the idea that you are paragliding? I honestly learned an, uh, about it, what it was just a few days ago when I heard that she crashed. I didn't even know that it existed and what it was. And the more I learned, the more I got surprised. Her energy, stamina, and aspiration absolutely left me in awe. And everything that she described was just amazing. With very minimum, she and her partners were climbing up the beautiful mountains of Kabul, letting themselves go and glide over the sky and I said, where do you land? They said, it depends on the wind. <laughs> this is young women in Afghanistan. 
This is what gives me hope. And this is why I strongly believe there is no going back. Because there is a shift now. There is a shift in mindset. There is irreversible change that has happened over the past 20 years. So Ambassador, talk about girls in school. So when you were, where were you, where were you during the Taliban period? Were you in Afghanistan? Uh, no. During the Taliban, OK. Can yeah, I backtrack? Yeah, just? backtrack. Uh, in the year 93, we fled Afghanistan because the fight was coming to our home, basically. We were living in Kabul, and there were the fighting was really escalating. And we, my family, like many, many other Afghans, fled to Pakistan. I was living in Peshawar when Taliban took over. However, during this time, I visited Afghanistan. I visited for two weeks when Taliban in were in power. Um, and that was not a good experience. I can tell you more. Do I have the time? You have all the time in the world. OK. It was during the year 1998. I was a teenager. I went back to my country, to, to the country that when I was a child, I loved it, of course, like everybody loves their country. And I imagined that it, that was the biggest country, the most beautiful country, and most developed country. And everything most and best was Afghanistan. That's, that's what I knew as a child. Um, I'm just going sideways just to tell you this, that I was so disappointed when I was a little child and I asked my father about another country. And I said, is Afghanistan bigger or this country? And my father said, this other country. And I couldn't believe it. And I was mm -hmm. mad at my father. Because everything wonderful was Afghanistan. So I went to this beloved country back in 1992 after we fled the, the civil war that was happening during the year 93. Uh, because we had uh, uh, family incidents. Uh, my grandmother had passed away. And so traditionally, we would go. And what I experienced, I would never, of course, forget. And I would never wish uh, on anybody to see it, ever. Um, I found this city that I loved so much uh, in this very gloomy mode that as if everybody was dying under this shadow, these shadows of fear. People were, there were few on the streets. There were these old uh, uh, yellow and white taxis that uh, were left over from the Soviet times. Few of them were driving around the streets. It felt like there was nothing going on. So I spent like about two weeks and heard so much about what was going on. There were few shops open. It was as if nothing was going on. It was like this uh, feeling of stagnation. I also felt like as if people had become paralyzed. People looked to me that they were walking and talking, but there was no energy, no motivation, no aspiration. Um, I had a thing against burqa all my life. So I was really resisting to come out of the house because if I did, I would have had to put on the burqa. So when you were there, you had to put on a burqa? Oh, of course. of course. Everybody yeah. did. Everybody did. That was the first time I saw my mother in burqa. I had never seen my mother in burqa, but she had to. To visit her mother's grave, she had to put on a burqa. So one time, they took the risk of taking me to the graveside. And um, there were two, these are very big shawls that I sewed them together. And I wrapped myself around it. And I went to the graveside that didn't look too different than the rest of the city to me, to be honest. It was all the same. So, but my worst experience was as we were going back to Pakistan, in the border, as we were crossing, we had to go through this, this by walk, this unpaved, basically, pub, pubble and dust checkpoint. And there was this young man who was in charge who would screen people crossing. 
There was a family before us. It was, well, the family was basically a, a woman with a boy about maybe eight to 10 years. First, this man grabbed this boy from his hair because he had long curly hair. And he was shaking him around for why he had curly hair mm. a little bit long. So he was just shaking mm. him around like this. And then this woman proceeded and uh, they had a bag with them. It was searched and there was a family album inside it. Mm. And that was confiscated and this young man in the checkpoint was going through their album. The woman was basically begging him, you can tear it, you can burn it, you can do whatever, just don't go through it. It's my family album. He wouldn't return it, he wouldn't burn it. He was just going through this album. Yeah. I was so furious. Then, it's my family, I have, I have two younger sisters. They were much younger then. One of them was carrying my sister. It's now our turn to be screened. One of them was carrying a statue, which was a horse. A horse that my grandmother had given to her. It was very dear to her because she was my grandmother's favorite. She was carrying that in a little plastic bag. So the first thing they took that, they searched it, and they took that horse and smashed it on the ground. Ugh. They broke it into pieces. My little sister, she was very young. She was about maybe three, four years old. She had a little plastic doll, just about this big. They had started taking that and trying to break that. They tried and tried, and it was a rubber <laughs> doll. It was, would not break. They tried. They put it on the ground and tried to smash it with a rock. That didn't work either. So the guy went to bring a match to burn it down. And then he got busy and he forgot it, and my little sister just went and grabbed the doll and put it back in her pocket. But as this guy was smashing this horse that was so dear to my sister, I was so furious that I wanted to really like attack this man. And my mother was just telling me, don't do anything stupid. Just stay calm, just stay calm. And she was so stressed and nervous that she tried everything she could to, to prevent me from doing what I wanted to do. And then we finally went through this whole thing and we went and sat in a bus to get across the border. And right there, I was praying that I would never want to return to anything like this. And I wish it on nobody ever. And I'm so glad that it was hurt. When I returned, that wasn't the case. And I, again, my wish will persist until I am alive. I would never wish anything like that on any human being. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so one of the things that I've been struck by, I've, I've had, we've had the privilege of having many of your, your, your colleagues in government come through here to talk about the hopes for the future of your country, mm -hmm. Ambassador. One of the things that's going to help create, we're, we're going to need to have a growing and prosperous Afghanistan. You have 400,000 young people joining the labor market every mm -hmm. year in Afghanistan. You're in a really challenging neighborhood, but an interesting neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of economic opportunities if there was peace and stability in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. There are a number of things that your government hopes to see come about, whether it's um, certain investments or certain projects that would create jobs in your country and would also create revenue to, again, uh, that would allow the Afghan government to, to, to bear more of a security burden, for example. That money would be used to car carry more of the security burden. Talk a little about some of your hopes for some of the, the economic projects you'd like to see happen in your country. Well, as you just mentioned, lots has happened already. Just in the past two years, our revenue grew by 70%. That's quite something. Uh, we are at a very unique place, as we say it, at the heart of Asia. So there is opportunity, certainly, for a lot of uh, uh, economic potentials. 
For the first time now, after 117 years, now we are once again connected to the Central Asia. With the potentials that exist between North and South and the needs that exist, we are very well situated to become a hub for energy, transport, data transport, uh, goods transport, and culture and civilizations movement like we were in, back in the history, a very essential and crucial part of the old Silk Route. There is much has happened in terms of the economic development. There is a huge number of uh, programs and projects in the pipe, internally and uh, regionally. Uh, one of very important areas of our livelihood is agriculture. Uh, there has been a huge increment in terms of our uh, agriculture products export. Just in the past two years, $200 million increase in our agricultural products export. Uh, and with the new air corridors that, that we have recently opened them, now we have six of them. Uh, our uh, export has really hiked up. And we are looking to much, much higher volumes of our products being exported. Of course, we have a comparative advantage in terms of the quality. We may not have comparative advantage vis-a-vis uh, -vis our regional partners uh, uh, in terms of quantity, but we certainly have comparative advantage in terms of quality. There is so many uh, programs and projects that are coming to flourish and coming to basically uh, to exist uh, at the regional uh, level. Uh, TAPI, the, the uh, gas pipeline that was stalled for about 20, 25 years, it is uh, uh, start basically. Now, um, now it has just started. The, cons the actual construction of this pipeline. This is Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, started. Pakistan, India. That's right. That's, that's the pipeline, uh, which will provide jobs, revenue, and uh, gas from Turkmenistan all the way to India. When, when, will it, when will it go online, Ambassador? We are hoping that very soon. Within like the in the next, next two years? Yes. That's, that's <coughs> the plan. Okay, so that'll, that'll mean jobs, but it'll also mean tax collection for the Afghan government. Again, more taxes they collect means more foreign aid we got to give, right? right? To be in, think in American terms about this, right? That's right. So, so Ambassador, you, um, you know, we have 15, well, there's three buckets of support that the United mm -hmm. States provides. One is that we have American troops. We have 15,000 American troops. Um, we have, we also are financial supporters to the Afghan army. Mm -hmm. We spend $5 billion a year in the Afghan army, down for, significantly down from the $10 billion a year we spent as, as late, as recently as 2011. And then we have a foreign assistance, a traditional foreign assistance program mm -hmm. that was as early, recently as 2010, about $2.5 billion is now about a billion dollars. So what that says to me is that there's, there's a, there's a series of things that we are providing. What, what would you, I mean, over time, we, we would like to finish in a way, we'd like to have a glide path mm -hmm. where we finish in a way so that the kind, I think we'll continue to probably need to have a foreign assistance program in Afghanistan, just the way we do in Malawi or we do in Bangladesh when there's peace. We're gonna have development equities in mm -hmm. your country. But the, the unusual expense of, of paying for the, for the Afghan military, I think, that would be an, over the next several years. It would be so great if we, if Afghanistan could begin to, um, as it collects more taxes, pay even more for its for its uh, for for the for its actual military. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the 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 military and and it seems as if you have three hundred thousand troops in your in mm -hmm. your in the Afghan army. It's do you have you you have people who are signing up every day to join the army? Is that a you you get volunteers? It's not a problem to get people to join the Afghan army. The entire Afghan army is based on the volunteer participation. It's not mandatory. Now we have over three hundred fifty thousand in our uh, national security forces. All of these people are volunteer. Nobody is forced to join. So uh, and in terms of the expenses and our road to self-reliance, 
I have to say that everybody in my country are working very hard to meet our goals for self-reliance. We wanted, I could say, more than you do. You, you want it more, you, you, the Afghans want it more than we want it. Uh, we do. Are, we do, absolutely we do. So would you say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Ambassador, but is it, is it would you say that you, you, are people voting with their feet in the sense that they're signing up to join? You don't have problems with get, meeting, getting, getting people to sign up for the Army? No, we don't. We don't have, and this is because of their devotion for, for their country and also for the values for what has changed. Once again, I am repeating myself that serving in our security forces, whether it's army or police or um, the National Directorate of Security, it's, it's not mandatory. It is by choice. People sign up voluntarily. I have met people who have told me stories that, that gives me every day the energy to move on and to fight and to basically continue to, uh, to represent them with hope. Let me share one small story with you. <clears throat> After parliamentary election, I visited Afghanistan. And I met very, people from all walks of life. I asked some of, uh, uh, well, actually, let me give you this particular story about this uh, soldier that I met. I asked him why he is in the army and he is fighting at the forefront and the front line of the fight against terrorism. And any day that he is in the front line, there is no promise that he will be returning to see his lovely daughters. I said, what drives you? He said, the two daughters that you mentioned. I don't want them not to have the opportunity to go to school. I want them to live the life that they deserve. This is the answer I got straight out from a soldier. And this is a example of money. And a lot of them, of course, there is the, some say, OK, they, they join because uh, they want a job. Sure, that is certainly a factor. But the extent that they are fighting at the forefront of the fight against terrorism, it, there, there must be something bigger than that. And there is. This is what I have been hearing from them. So, so I can tell policymakers in Washington that your countrymen are willing to fight for this progress. And it's obvious, right? It's obvious that they're willing to fight for this. They are not going to fight. They are fighting. And they, they will fighting. continue to fight. Good. Good. OK, I have one last thing I want to raise with you, which is um, you're, you have had more than 15 years of, of, of experience with democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and you've had a number of, dem of elections. Um, some have been uh, less great than others. Some have been uh, in terms of how the quality of them, I would, but I would just say that there's, but there's been enormous support mm -hmm. by the Afghans themselves to vote. Now, I th I've seen numbers like 8 million, in a couple of presidential elections, you've had as many as 8 million Afghans mm -hmm turn out and vote. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how many. So could you talk a little bit about the, how Afghanistan thinks about its democracy? Because I, I would argue that if you've got 8 million people and a large percentage of your, your countrymen are coming out and voting, that that's a legitimate government. And that do you have a legitimate constitution? You have a legitimate government. People have gone out and voted, in, even in putting their lives in danger, getting killed, standing in line to vote. <laughs> because they want to have their mm -hmm. voices heard. Could you just talk a little bit about how Afghans feel about their democracy? As you just mentioned, uh, the latest election we had was the parliamentary election. Let me also point out a few other facts around that. It was the first election that the security of it was totally responsibility of our forces. Fair and enough. we had the much lesser number of incidents than the previous elections. That was our forces that were in charge. The number of people that came out to vote, despite the challenges we have had, we are not oblivious to those. They exist, and we are working on them. But the number of people that came out to vote is a testament of their resolve to democracy. 
they want their voices heard. I met so many people after the elections because I couldn't vote. I was not in the country. I was in my previous posting station. But what filled me so much with joy that after election, the, there was a, um, uh, the, I was posted in Indonesia. And right after that, in October, there was a, uh, Indonesian uh, International Trade Expo, where a huge number of delegation from all countries come. And Afghanistan was participating also in large numbers. Over hundreds of our uh, people from the private sector was participating. When I met with them, one thing that, that really, really was encouraging to me was when I looked across the table, everyone's finger was tainted. Was purple. It was Because purple. you got a purple finger if you voted. Everybody's per finger was purple because they, had, they went and they dipped their finger in the ink because they voted. And that was so encouraging. When I went back to Afghanistan, I saw the same thing. Following the election, it was the same thing. The number of people that came out. I met people who told me that they, uh, they went to the polling station. They waited. They, they realized that after four hours, they wouldn't get their turn. They went the next day, stood again, and made sure that they voted. And these are not people who are politically affiliated or they have any other motivation. They wanted to have a say on who is going to represent them. So I've got one last. I do have, I'm, I miss, misspoke. I've got one last thing I want to say. So there are many people in the United States are, are, have, um, are weary of the, the efforts that the United States and our, our partners have made to support Afghanistan. So what is your message to Americans who are weary? What is the message you want them to understand? Don't worry. Everything is going in the right direction. We just have to give it a little time, coordinate, cooperate, and look closer. As we started, there is so much that gives me so much hope that despite anything we hear and see, in the headlines, and the, in the articles, and the speculation, I don't believe that we are going to go backward. Because the changes that has happened are irreversible. Irreversible in a sense that when people's mindset is different, that's that by, by putting them inside and trying to enforce them to things, that will not change. You cannot bring them back to the darkness. So uh, yeah, the message is don't worry, look deeper. And together, we will win together. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you. Good. OK, I know there's some very smart people in this room. So I'd like to see some hands, and I'll bunch some questions together. OK? OK, this gentleman, this gentleman, this gentleman. Can we get some gender balance here? Is it all going to be? I, can't, I don't want to just all call on dudes, right? OK, and this woman over here. So. Okay, start with him. Okay, if everyone gets credit, extra credit for keeping it short, keep it short. Name, rank, and serial number short, and we'll get to a lot of people, okay? Uh, Daniel Ambassador, thank you very much. My name is Matthew Murray. I have the honor to serve on as an international commissioner on the Joint Independent Monitoring and Evaluation Committee of sure. Afghanistan, of which is a position appointed by President Ghani. Of course. We report up to him on progress on the prevention side of corruption. Mm -hmm. I just want to applaud you both for uh, emphasizing the, the positive, constructive narrative that is emerging day in and day out in Afghanistan. I think it, it's a reminder that we shouldn't rush the peace process just to bring back the Taliban to power, and that that would negate all the sacrifice that's been made in terms of blood and treasure, and that this process needs to be transparent so it protects the institutions and the integrity of the institutions that have been built. My question is, um, this all raises a question of strategic communications around the progress being made. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that in the anti-corruption business, mm -hmm. particularly on the prevention side of the ledger, that's a difficult day-to-day mm -hmm. -day challenge. I wonder what your thoughts are, Ambassador, about how um, this community, you and with your leadership, with the president's leadership, mm -hmm. can, can uh, do better okay. at strategic communications. Okay. Okay, this gentleman over here. 
Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Barakat. Uh, thank you very much for the great deliberation about the progress and the hope for Afghanistan. Uh, my question is about the generational change that we often talk in Afghanistan, 75% of Afghans being under the age of 35. How would that uh, play in Afghanistan? Is it an opportunity or uh, uh, a challenge for the Afghan government? Okay, so the youth bulge as an opportunity as a, or a challenge. Then who else? So one is corruption, youth bulge, yep. Um, thank you very much, Ms. Ambassador, for your excellent representation of our country. Uh, my name is Bahman Shahi. I'm a Fulbright Scholar from Afghanistan, and uh, I'm a Strategic Planning Fellow at the Search for Common Ground organization. Um, could you talk a little about what is the regional consensus over our peace process in Afghanistan, especially our neighboring countries, and what is the level of support for the Afghan government and the young democracy in Afghanistan? Thank okay, you. my friend over here. Hi, I'm Stephanie Foster. I served at the embassy for a while in Afghanistan. Um, I'm curious about, um, we hear a lot about the peace process or the negotiations that are going on in, um, with the Taliban. I'm curious especially to hear your thoughts, but really around the role of Afghan women. And I know the Taliban have made some comments about protecting women's rights as long as they're consistent with Islam, but not and Afghan traditions. So it seems like a little bit of a red flag. So curious what your thoughts are about how to ensure that women's voices are engaged in the peace process or any negotiations going forward. Okay, so the role of the peace process and the role of women in the peace process, youth bulge corruption, I didn't catch the gentleman who's the Fulbright, but I think you got it. Okay, so Ambassador. And then we'll, go, we'll capture another three or four after this, okay. Thank you for your question and for your work about the strategic communication. Uh, you're right, it is certainly a challenge and, I'm, and I share another anecdote that I was talking to my colleagues and I said that well, it was a discussion and we said, okay, we are kind of behind with our strategic communication. We are not really uh, able to demonstrate our achievements as much as we should. Um, we even made some examples of the, of the other groups who are making better use of the technology and the social media and whatnot. Then the consensus around between few of us was, well, we are, busy trying to serve and provide services. This is why we fall behind with the communication and displaying our success because we need to focus more on how to do things better. This is not an excuse, definitely, but certainly this is one of the reasons that, that uh, we, are not, we are not paying in as much efforts into trying to demonstrate the successes that we have had, uh, because there is so much more that we are trying to get up to speed with. Um, about uh, the youth being an opportunity or a challenge, <clears throat> I think our, the youth and women combined are the majority of, the, of our country that over decades have been relegated to the minority in both in political and public spaces. And there is an opportunity for this to become reversed. Uh, I think the youth is our strength. The fact that they have had a chance to live uh, more uh, normally, uh, access education, uh, aspire to, to what uh, children or youth of their age are doing in the rest of the world is certainly an advantage and uh, certainly our capital. And we are trying everything we, to, we, we can to ensure that we can deliver to their aspiration. Regional consensus, it's a very important thing because as you rightly would know the conflict in Afghanistan is complex because it's not a conflict between people of the nation. It's a regional conflict. And the, the regional dynamics of it is of uh, huge importance. Uh, what is important is that 
our regional partners should come to an understanding and realize that there is more benefit to a peaceful and stable Afghanistan than one that would be in conflict or a buffer or a source of problem in the region. Afghanistan's location provides opportunities for all of us to, prof, uh, to uh, basically prosper together. And the realization of it and cooperation is of immense importance. We have been working towards that. The cooperation that we have made with the different regional partners is testament to that. Today, we are very well connected with a with most of our uh, neighbors. We are opening different avenues of trade and transit, and we are trying to uh, capitalize on mutual and shared benefits uh, that we all can benefit from. Level of support for the new democracy. Uh, democracies are held up by people. And this is something that the people has demonstrated that they are up for democracy. We have an elected government. We have now, an elect, uh, of course, an elected parliament. Our constitution was based on uh, the most legitimate platform that has centuries of tradition in Afghanistan. People from every corner of Afghanistan came together to devise the constitution that we have, which is the basis of uh, our coexistence, and, and we are all binding to it. So there cannot be more support for this. And it's also something that people are for. Women, peace process. I always believe that if you neglect 50% of your population, you are a crippled nation. Mm. So how could anything sustain if you have already isolated 50% of the population? The legitimacy of it is already put in test and question. I don't know what else could be a bigger concern in that. Number two, women in Afghanistan have their own voice. Every single, not every day, every hour I am getting messages back from my country of how they are grouping and regrouping and discussing about their, what they want to do and what's their voices. They, women are taking different platform and this is what democracy is providing them. Even when they criticize the government, I'm not talking about women right now, anyone. This is actually, this makes me happy because it means that, that we have come to the point that people feel that they need to hold the government accountable. They, they feel that their voices matter. This is why they are speaking up. So, Peace without women, without youth, I don't know. It, what, is, what is peace? Is that just the silencing of the guns? Would that be silenced enough? Or peace and security means human security, where human can live in, a, in, a, in an environment without fear where they could prosper, where they could aspire, where they could see their future and know that there is place, uh, they, can, they can enjoy their very human rights. That's Great, okay, I'd like to get some more quick hands, hands please. So this woman back there, this gentleman back there, uh, this gentleman back here, and this gentleman here. Okay, go ahead. Name, rank, serial number, keep it short, extra credit. I'm Kateri Carmola, and I uh, was a professor at Middlebury College. I taught a lot of Afghan students. Some of your compatriots are now back in Afghanistan. However, I would like to hear your opinion about the recent statements and the negotiations with the Taliban. 
Has the Taliban changed any? Do you have any hope for negotiations that just occurred in the UAE and in Russia? Okay, this gentleman here, we'll go bunch them together. Come on. Uh, thank you so much. <clears throat> first of all, congratulations for becoming first female pres uh, ambassador of Afghanistan to the U.S. My name is Abdullah. I'm a student at George Washington University. So my question is really quick. Uh, President Ghani sent a letter to President Trump regarding uh, reducing cost mm -hmm. and also reducing troop, uh, U.S. troops from Afghanistan. But so far in uh, State of the Union speech of President Trump, he mentioned about Afghanistan, about peace process, but with groups. What does that mean? He did not mention anything about Afghan government. What's your stand on that? Thank you so much. Okay. Um, this gentleman here. I'm Tom Bradley from Fairfax, Virginia. Thank you for coming here, Ambassador. Uh, less than a month ago, the New York Times and other papers in the U.S quoted American military commanders in Afghanistan as saying that the drive toward military effectiveness of the Afghan military is a, uh, is a, a frustrating work in progress with no end in sight. With the American military facing the possibility of a drawdown of forces in Afghanistan, uh, how do you foresee the uh, continuing fight for security uh, in Afghanistan going? What, what will be the effectiveness of your forces as, as they face the challenges they face in your country. Thank you. Thank you. This gentleman here. Hi. Yeah. I'm, Jonathan uh, I'm Jonathan Landay. I'm a reporter with Reuters. I've been covering Afghanistan since 1985. Um, the president or the announcement that the president was going to withdraw half U.S. forces um, created the uh, impression that there was going to be a precipitous withdrawal of U.S. forces. The other night in the State of the Union, he appeared to specifically link withdrawal, possible withdrawals, with um, progress in the peace talks. Was that enough to reassure the Afghan government that there won't be a precipitous withdrawal? And how did the Afghan government interpret the president's words? Okay, good. Okay. All easy questions, great, all right, but good ones. Okay, thank you. If I see any change in Taliban, if I have any hopes. Hopes, I will start with the reverse way. Hopes is there, hopes are high, and I am full of hopes. And let me tell you why. I want to bring it even more to you to life. The gentleman just right there who asked me a question, Abdullah, the gentleman sitting in the third row, Bahman, and many others who haven't probably spoken, they are Afghan students in the United States. And let me also explain and take the time to give you a very, I'm trying to be short, story. When Taliban took over in Afghanistan, there was a young woman who was in her 11th grade of school that year. She could no, no longer continue to go to school. She stayed home. She started classes in her home for children to teach them to read and write in her house for free, voluntarily, until she started getting threats. Then this woman altered her bigger classes and started teaching English to her friends in her home because she had to reduce the number of people coming to their home, although her family had declared that she is teaching sewing to the children because everybody needs to become sourced. Yeah, then you had to know how to sew clothes. So after the fall of Taliban, this woman completed her school. She went to university, although she was married and already had a child by then. She went to law school in Afghanistan. She entered foreign service. She went to US 
and God and her LLM. And now she is one of the very seasoned diplomats in our embassy. She's sitting right here. Can I ask, ask you to stand, stand up? up. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is where the hope comes from. Have they changed? It's up to them. I haven't seen the signs. It is to be proven. Yeah? Because whether they change or not, we have changed. We have changed in a way that we are not ready to go back. Uh, a letter was sent uh, to the government and uh, uh, your question was mostly about uh, the State of Union not mentioning uh, the government of Afghanistan. The State of Union, of course, is a platform where the president is explaining his internal policies, what he, it's of course his discretion to speak about uh, different things. There is, of course, uh, no obligation for him to mention one thing or another. He explained his policy and, and that, that's fine. The fact that he didn't mention specifically the government, it's, it doesn't say anything, it, it is not, it's not an indication or implication of anything to me. I, I, I was there, I listened to his speech, and he very clearly explained his policies. So I am not interpreting that in any ways as a, uh, as a matter of policy. Uh, the drawdown and effects of it, uh, if, I, if I understood, your question, in 2014, we took over uh, our security from the international forces. In December 2014, 100,000 international troops draw down. A lot of people back then, when I was in Afghanistan, actually starting from 2010-11, were imagining that after the, the troops draw down, there would be a collapse. Everything will fall apart. And we saw what happened. It's not the case. It's the Afghan troops who took over, and they are responsible for securing us and securing the rest of the world from the scourge of terrorism. They, play a very, they pay a very high price for that. Uh, would, the, would the drawdown have an effect? We are, we are very grateful for the support that we have received from partners. This is something that we will never uh, forget. We will always cherish and appreciate that. And we have been planning towards our self-reliance. We have a date for it. We have promised to our international partners with their, that the, with their support by the year 2024, Five which, years. which is the end of transformation decade, we will reach to self-reliance. The fact that we can do this in a very coordinated manner. Nobody is hope, wishing for your troops to stay there forever. We would like to, to reach self-sufficiency uh, and self-reliance, and we are on the right path and making efforts night and day towards that. So my hope is that the, in a, a well-coordinated drawdown will not negatively affect. And uh, The journalist. Yes, whether the statement of the State of Union was reassuring to the people or not. To, oh, to government, okay. So I believe that, that our governments continue, as always, to have very good relationship. Uh, we are not agitated by the headlines and the stories and the speculation that appear. Because the situation and overall uh, relationship and what we do is a lot more complex than simply speculating one way or another. Uh, as you heard, it was also a response, I think, to a lot of people who were previously speculating 
that oh, State of the Union will be the end of the engagement in Afghanistan. I'm sure you have heard it, like I have heard it. So, and we saw that that's not the case. And the government, uh, the, the two governments have good enough relationship to realize and be assured, and they are not just relying on the statements in one place or another. There is a direct channel between them. They are regularly talking. We are talking to the United States representative back in Afghanistan and here. And we are not uh, concerned the way that the headlines are, or some of the, some of the media outlets are producing these news. OK. Ambassador, it's been a privilege and an honor to have you. Please join me in thanking the ambassador.